I want to invite you guys to work through a thought experiment with me. Are you ready? Your mind is ready? Okay. Imagine, if you will, uh, a young activist at some kind at work for years in her community. She's taken great strides in making the world around her a better place. Her peers eventually approach her with an intimidating sort of encouragement, run for office, move further into the system to affect greater change for more people. So after careful consideration, this young activist agrees and thus follows the campaign whirlwind, you know, long nights and travel and endless conversations and interviews and debates and great sacrifice and hard work, but all in the hopes to make the world a better place and to continue the work she began. The election eventually comes and goes, and to her astonishment, she's actually victorious. The people have spoken, and with great favor, they have chosen her. So her dreams of affecting social reform have been elevated to an unprecedented new platform. So still reeling from the news, oh my gosh, I won, she takes a stroll in the park. And suddenly, for the first time, there speaks a new voice into her subconscious. Now you have power. Now you have authority. You could eliminate those contrary coworkers if you like. You could shake the right hands and know the right people and get yourself a bigger paycheck if you wanted. You could make some deals, you could scratch some backs, you could just make small compromises to get things done and pad your pockets in the meantime, all in the name of the greater good, of course. The possibilities are endless. Now, consider Matthew's biography of Jesus. Jesus is born into bizarre circumstances, if you've been tracking with the story. The ultimate Lord of the entire cosmos, long-awaited King of Israel, born to poor teenagers in a cave. And, but he's also heralded by this announcement of angels. It's the whole deal. Jesus grows up in obscurity until a prophet um, that was foretold in the book of Isaiah proclaims that the king, the long-awaited king of Israel, has arrived, and he has arrived in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus gets baptized. If you were here last week, the heavens open up. God speaks over Jesus. The Spirit descends. It's this big moment. This is God's anointed king. And now, 30 or so years old, we think Jesus is going to begin his work proper, his ministry. And he begins having been affirmed by the Father. The reality of his calling, the mission that he has before him, they weigh heavily upon him, as we'll see in the stories to come. So much so that before he begins his work proper, he's tempted to go about things differently. Jesus is tempted to abandon God's plan in favor of someone else's. So with that in mind, turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4. If you're new here, we are a family that is learning what it means to practice the way of Jesus together. As Cameron was talking about just a couple minutes ago, we go about that a number of ways. Our primary method, we think, is through what we call Van City Communities, which, like he said, are just small groups of guys and gals, young and old, who meet every week, share a meal, and then they actually work through a practice-based curriculum of spiritual disciplines together, trying to figure out what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. The other main way that we go about that is what we're doing right now. We gather every Sunday evening to worship as God's children, to take the bread and the cup, just as Jesus asked us to do, and to learn from the scriptures. Currently, our focus is set on one first century biography of Jesus of Nazareth that the church knows as the Gospel of Matthew because we cannot practice the way of Jesus without learning about the life and the lifestyle of this teacher that we apprentice. So, let's get to tonight's text and work through it line by line. You guys ready? 
Great. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Stop right there, because, you know, the story's already weird, right? The, if, you, if you remember back to our discussion about uh, the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude, that word translated here as wilderness is actually eremos in Greek. It can also be translated as desert or deserted place, desolate place, solitary place, quiet place, or even lonely place. And these descriptions have less to do with the geography or the physical makeup of the location in question. They have more to do with the, the sort of purpose that they assume in the life of Jesus. The eremos is a lonely place for Jesus to have time in silence and in solitude. Let's read on. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Makes sense, right? Um, why all the fasting? Well, in, in fact, why all the silence and solitude in the first place? It seems honestly like a bad way to get your wits about you if Jesus knows that he's headed into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, first of all, 40 days isn't necessarily a literal measurement of time. Uh, in the scriptures, 40 days is something like an idiom that designates a significant but ultimately limited passage of time. It's something like the way my wife, Abby, who's just up here, she uses 500,000 years to describe any length of time that seems, uh, you know, unpleasant to her or slow. So if she's on hold with the bank, it's five for 500,000 years. Or if you know, the time that it takes for a traffic light to change, always 500,000 years. The time it takes to fill a glass of water, you know, 500,000 years. But here in the story, scholars suspect that Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness act as more of a parallel to Israel's 40 years in their own wilderness, if you know the story of Exodus. And in making such a connection, Matthew's up to something really important, and we'll get to why later on. What I want to point out presently is that many of us read these conditions, the solitude, the fasting, the hunger, as Matthew's way of creating a vulnerable scene for Jesus. We read it as though Satan arrives when Jesus is at his weakest point. But as we've previously discussed in depth, if you were here, the eremos, the wilderness, the solitary place, does not represent a state of weakness for Jesus. It's actually his resource of great strength. So the Spirit draws Jesus out into the Aramos not to raise the stakes of the ensuing test by making him weak, but because when these 40 days of silence and solitude and fasting conclude, Jesus will be at the height of his spiritual prowess. Then and only then will he be properly prepared to face the evil one. This is why when you read the story of the gospel, Jesus returns to the Aramos again and again and again. When you read that Jesus went to a quiet place to pray or he stayed up all night in a lonely place to pray, he goes there not to get weak, weak, but to get strong. And sure enough, the devil shows up. Look down at verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, notice the way the evil one frames his first temptation. If you are the Son of God. Think back to last week's story. Cameron was up here talking about the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus comes out of the water, the voice of God speaks over him. What does it say? You are my son, right? And this is my son. I am well pleased with him. In the very next story, Satan arrives with a challenge. If you are God's son. And this has been the strategy of Satan uh, since his earliest appearance in the story of the Bible, in which God tells Adam and Eve, eat this tree and die. It's pretty straightforward. And Satan comes along to ask, did God really say, if you eat this tree, you will die? Ultimately, these temptations are tethered to Jesus' God-spoken identity. God has said who Jesus is, and Satan invites Jesus to question what God said about who he is. It's almost like he's saying, sure, sure, yeah, God said you were his son, 
but how can we be sure until we see some rocks turn into bread? If, if we saw that, we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt. Is God's word enough, in other words? And really, what's the, the devil playing at? What's the significance of such a test? Why the rocks and the bread? Is it, is it really such a lapse in character to be hungry and to want to eat something? And turning stones into bread is, of course, not a temptation in the truest sense for most of us on an ordinary basis. Um, it is, on the other hand, a temptation for a fully spirit-empowered person who is very hungry and very confident in the miraculous. And after all, you know, Satan's playing to this idea of, isn't it beneath the Son of God to suffer hunger unnecessarily? What kind of king is this? Why, why languish in the wilderness without food when Jesus can summon the awesome, miraculous, transformative power to turn a rock into a piece of toast? If I could do that, I, I suppose I would wield that power quite frivolously. So let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of of God. And Jesus' uh, rebuttal, it is written, can also be translated, Scripture says. Jesus' view of the authority and the centrality of the Scriptures cannot be exaggerated. I really mean that. For Jesus, the answer to temptation, to the testing of the evil one, is already in the text. To Jesus, the text demands familiarity. He has it memorized. He conjures it up from memory um, in order to garner his obedience. He knows the scriptures. He arms himself with their truth. And Jesus' answer from the scriptures is actually an interesting one. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8, which is itself one piece of the story of Israel in the wilderness in, in which they're learning what it means to wait for God's provision. In this case, they're actually waiting for bread in order that they might live in loving dependence on their God, Yahweh. So Jesus' contrast between bread and every word that comes from God's mouth may seem a tad strange because, you know, you can't eat God's word. So it's like, well, that's not even what I was talking about. But the simple truth is that, that at which Jesus is arriving is that there's more to life than material provision. That's what he's getting at. The identity that God has spoken over Jesus need not be proven by miraculous provision of bread. Or put another way, this is a test of priorities, which will come first. Obedience to the purpose of God or immediate self-gratification. Jesus seems to understand that on this particular occasion, food will be provided by God later, and he is thus prepared to wait. And so we move to the next temptation. Jesus won, the devil zero. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Then Satan says, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So next in the story, we're weirdly transported elsewhere for the second test. Uh, Jesus is taken to the highest point of the temple, and Satan asks him to jump from it for some weird reason. Satan uses Psalm 91 to argue once again that if Jesus is God's son, if Jesus is who God said he is, then it stands to reason that God will make good on the promise of Scripture to rescue Jesus from a fall. Satan knows the Bible. Just like as Jesus was able to quote it from memory and use it to his advantage, Satan does the exact same thing, but perverted. The Bible can actually be used satanically. Think about that. Strange. Um, the Bible has been used to support the, the slaughter of Native Americans, the bombs of war, the shackles of slavery. We, Westerners, we know this well enough. The Bible can be used satanically. 
But having failed to compel Jesus to sin in his physical hunger, Satan takes aim at what Jesus has already displayed as his strength, his concern for Scripture. Notice, having just been rebutted by Jesus by the way of the Bible, Satan himself now says, for it is written. And Satan doesn't relegate his work to the wilderness. He takes Jesus and puts him on the temple. He skulks through the holy temple as well. He lurks the halls of the church as well, urging sincere disciples with a surprising and heinous evil to pervert the Bible and to use it selfishly. Jesus has responded in faith with Scripture, so Satan challenges him indeed. Basically, he's saying, put your money where your mouth is, Mr. Bible. Glorify God by demonstrating your faith in the text. Surely you believe in the promises of God, Mr. It is written. Then prove it. Jump. And thus Jesus replies to the devil. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, <laughs> Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus' uh, quotation here, it's of Deuteronomy 6, 26, Do not test the Lord your God. That could also be translated as something like, You shall not force the hand of God, or you shall not manipulate God, or play around with God even. And wonderfully, Jesus employs correct use of Scripture against Satan's perversion of it. And notice, Jesus challenges Satan's crass, literal reading of the text with a better, broader understanding of the entire story of God. Now, of course, stepping out in faith, even like to compel the miraculous, I would argue absolutely has its place. It's not in and of itself bad. But that isn't what this test is about. This is about manipulating God to reaction and in doing so, challenging the truth that God has already spoken over Jesus. Jesus, again, rebuts with Deuteronomy, but not to object to Psalms you know, 91 as though it's incorrect in some way, so much as he objects to Satan's use of Psalm 91. For Jesus, testing God this way is a horrible reversal of roles. The Son is meant to be tested that he might learn dependence on and obedience to the Father. It is not the role of the Father to be tested by the Son. To behave in this way would imply that God is to submit to and serve the Son. But as we know from Jesus' ongoing confession, his entire mission and purpose is to do the will of his Father. And so, the final test begins. Let's read verse 8. <clears throat> Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Now, given the fact that no earthly mountain that we know of can provide an actual view of all the kingdoms of the world, this may have been a vision of some kind, we don't know. The mention of, like, the glory of the kingdoms, the language there seems to suggest that the devil is offering universal governmental dominion to Jesus. He's prepared to offer the reigns of the earthly empires to this obscure uh, first century rabbi. And this is, after all, exactly what Israel's Messiah was often expected to claim, was political authority. And fascinatingly, Jesus does not contest that the dominion in question is Satan's to give. In fact, his very rejection of Satan's offer presupposes that the offer itself is legitimate. The empires of the world do belong to Satan, and they are his to give. And if it sounds like we're reaching a bit, look at how the authors of the New Testament describe the devil and his authority. Now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, here referring to Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. 
put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood or, or people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. How about this one? We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Mennonite scholar John Howard Yoder summarizes this motif by saying this, There's a very strong strand of gospel teaching which sees secular government as the province of the sovereignty of Satan. This is perhaps most typically expressed in the temptation story in which Jesus did not challenge the claim of Satan to be able to dispose of the rule of all the nations. All that to say, if Satan is not making a legitimate offer here, then temptation is something of a farce, right? He's not really offering anything at all. He's not being tempted. But he is making a very real offer and Jesus is actually tempted. Think about that. Why would Jesus be tempted by an offer like this one? Well, consider the stakes. In Greek, the verb form for what Jesus is being asked to do, to bow to Satan, uh, suggests a single act. It's not necessarily an ongoing worship of Satan per se. So if Jesus truly loves the world, if his mission truly weighs on him, then a certain, an absolute certainty of accomplishment of his good and loving kingship in a single moment was absolutely tempting. Who wouldn't be tempted by such an offer? Jesus isn't tempted with corrupt power, um, but he's tempted with good power by certain instantaneous means, which is itself tempting. It is the right ends by the wrong means. Jesus puts this plainly elsewhere. Later in Matthew, he'll say, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' approach to this whole premise of kingship is entirely upside down. It makes no sense whatsoever. He, he actually will be the king of kings, but he does so by becoming a servant um, look at the way Paul will go on to describe Jesus' pursuit of kingship. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at this really bizarre language up here. He humbled himself. Being in very nature God, he humbled himself. He suffered the most humiliating death the Roman Empire had to offer. He made himself nothing. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Because of all this humiliation and death, every knee will eventually bow to the name of Jesus. It's not just that Satan's offer is, you know, like from Satan. Um, it's, it's that Jesus' approach to dominion, to king, kingship, is absolutely in defiance of all logic, all human understanding. We, yes, kingship is absolutely where Jesus is headed, but he's getting there via suffering, humiliation, becoming nothing, and eventually dying. Let's see how Jesus responds to the final temptation. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God 
and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So again, Jesus answers from Deuteronomy, this time six, once again, and here he's had enough, and he dismisses the evil one altogether, and it works. Now, angels show up to care for Jesus, which is interesting because they're fulfilling the role that Satan previously distorted by quoting Psalm 91, that God will send angels to take uh, charge and care for you. And Jesus seems to understand better than Satan, go figure, and angels show up all the same. Now, Satan has gone after Jesus' identity, and though the offers were tempting, Jesus rejects them one by one using Scripture and his authoritative command of the text. Now, of course, Jesus will go on to face the devil much more throughout his ministry. The fact that he's left him here doesn't mean that he's left him altogether. In fact, the test of Jesus' identity won't come to climax until the story of his execution. Um, when Jesus' disciples learn of Jesus' impending death, when he tells them, I've absolutely got to die, that's the way this is going to happen, it's the very heart of my mission and my purpose, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, denounces this idea. He thinks it's the worst idea he's ever heard, and he says, never, this will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter, if you know the story? Get behind me, Satan. That's the worst thing you can possibly hear from Jesus, right? The, the same exact thing that Satan, or that Jesus spoke to the devil, away from me, just as he said in this temptation in the wilderness, which was the same thing. The devil trying to dissuade Jesus from his purpose, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Finally, or, or after that, Jesus stands before a Roman governor uh, called Pilate, and he claims that he does indeed possess the authoritative power to summon angels to his rescue, the very trait that Satan challenges in tonight's story. But on both occasions, Jesus refuses to exploit that power. Finally, in Jesus' final moments, the religious and the political leaders of Israel stand before the cross saying, if you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. And Jesus much as in this story does not give in to their taunts. And God again affirms his identity, this time by raising him from the dead in the greatest victory the world has ever known. And the key, I think, in understanding tonight's text is in this interesting detail of Jesus' particular choice of rebuttal. Each of Jesus' three answers to Satan are quotes from Deuteronomy, from 6, 7, and 8. Why is this noteworthy? Because the quotes in question are lifted from an Old Testament story in which Moses addresses Israel just before they enter the land of Canaan. So in the story, Moses reminds uh, the Jewish people of the 40 years that they've spent in the wilderness, the 40 years that have acted as years of preparation, of being tested in order to prove their faithfulness to Yahweh. And this has been meant to teach Israel what it means to live in loving, faithful relationship with their God. During their testing, Israel is meant to learn their need for more than just bread, but for God's word. They learn not to test God. They learn to make Yahweh the exclusive recipient of their worship and obedience. Now, in Matthew's gospel, another son of God is being tested in the wilderness. Not Israel, God's children, but Jesus of Nazareth, God's son. And beautifully, unlike Israel, who failed in her testing time and time again, Jesus does not fail. Jesus is the new and true Israel. He is the son of God through whom God's redemptive purpose for the world is finally coming to fruition. So God promised to set the world to rights 
um, through Israel. And even when Israel failed to uphold her end of the bargain or the covenant, as God calls it, God is yet creatively making good on his promise through Jesus, the new and true Israel. Matthew's first century readers would have read this message and seen these allusions to the story of Exodus loud and clear. Now, before we get to whatever bearing this first century story has on you and I tonight, we need to address two elephants that this story has loosed into the room. One, the fact that Jesus was tempted at all. That's weird. And two, the fact that he was tempted by the devil. So let's begin with this whole dilemma of Jesus' temptation. Now, we tend to read into the story, maybe this is just me, but we read into the story um, a Jesus who is not affected by the devil's offers in the least. He's obstinate, he's unflinching, he's waving each offer away with, you know, a cool dismissive hand. And the devil's stupid little lures, we often think, they, they couldn't possibly interest Jesus any less. But temptation, by its very nature and definition, insists that just the opposite is true. Satan offers tempt Jesus, meaning part of him would like to embrace these offers. Part of him must even consider what it might be like to embrace these offers. One scholar puts it this way, it is clear that the canonical evangelists or the authors of the, of the uh, scriptures want us to believe that Jesus was truly tempted here and throughout his life. Otherwise, surely, the entire gospel would seem a charade. The author of Hebrews affirms that Jesus' temptation is actually broader than just three brief instances in the wilderness when he writes, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is actually quite incredible. Firstly, we see from the story that temptation in and of itself is not sinful, meaning that you can be genuinely tempted to lash out or to lie or to get drunk or to look at porn or to have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance. And the instance of temptation, this consideration of what that might be like, the desire to do so, is not in itself sinful per se. The potential to sin is in the response to temptation. So Jesus is able to confront genuine temptation, to want something, to consider something, and to be without sin because of the way he responds to that temptation. The temptation itself is very legitimate, and that's actually crucial to our understanding of this story. This fact is often lost on many of us because we're living in a time of, of backlash against liberal theology's de-emphasizing of Jesus' divinity. And when I say liberal, I don't mean in any political sense, but in a theological sense. So in the wake of much academic work done to make Jesus out to be little more than an awesome human and a great teacher, modern evangelicalism came along and, and rightfully insisted, no, Jesus is the Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the incarnation of Yahweh, which is true. The problem is that in doing so, we've often lost the humanity of Jesus. So yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is fully God, but he was also human, meaning that in the incarnation, Jesus, uh, to quote one Bible scholar, lays down the God card and opts instead to pick up a spirit-empowered humanity, actually a person. God is all-powerful, but is Jesus all-powerful? It's, it's not a trick question. He's not. Spoiler alert. He gets hungry. He gets tired. He suffers. And eventually he dies, if you know the story. 
God is omnipresent, all places at once. Is Jesus omnipresent? No, he's spatially located, one place at a time. God is all-knowing or omniscient. Jesus is not depicted as being omniscient. The, the text says that he grew in wisdom, meaning that he went from a state of less wisdom to more wisdom. Jesus asks non-rhetorical questions. Who touched my clothes and how long has this sick boy been this way? And sure, Jesus absolutely accomplishes incredible, miraculous feats, uh, prophetic words of knowledge, healing. You know, he does the thing with the bread. That's pretty impressive. Um, but he does all these things as a human being that is fully empowered by God's Spirit, meaning that we can do that stuff as people that are empowered by God's Spirit. In fact, if you don't believe me, Jesus goes on to say that you and I can do even more than he did. But none of us actually believe that uh, experientially or in practice, right? We don't want to believe, take Jesus at his word on that one. And I don't know about you, but if Jesus is actually right in saying, I can do more than he did, I'm not God, right? You're not either, if you, just in case you were misled at some point. <laughs> um, this matters tremendously because God, in Jesus, is able to empathize with the challenges and the suffering that you and I face in temptation. He's not aloof and disconnected and unable to relate. He actually knows what it means to be tempted in and through Jesus. And of course, in the story, that temptation comes by way of the devil. Now, the character of Satan is known by several names in the scriptures. Uh, the tempter, ruler of demons, he gets called, uh, the devil, the evil one. For example, uh, the Greek and Hebrew word for his character is uh, hasatan, which just means the Satan. It's not a, a name, but a title that means something like accuser or opponent. And interestingly, Hasatan, as a spiritual enemy of God and of God's people, appears very rarely in the Old Testament. He's there, especially like in the book of Job, he factors heavily. But um, he shows up very little. But by the time of Matthew's writing, the Hebrew understanding of Hasatan had developed under a variety of names. He's called Belial, he's called Belial, a Mestima, or Azazel. Uh, but more often than not, Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser. In the first century, Satan was part and parcel of Jewish belief. It was commonly understood that there was an entity known as the accuser. And he continued on in that way and has been a part of Christian tradition from day one. Absolutely. And though Satan factors minimally in the Old Testament, the entire witness of the New Testament affirms his very personal existence. And interestingly... There's been another move of, of academia uh, and specifically uh, liberal theology to depersonify Satan and sort of reduce him to a sort of force of evil um, that is not an autonomous and personal entity, but basically a malevolent force out there in the world. And the scriptures, I would argue personally, make no such allowance. And even uh, liberal scholars that I read this week to pre uh, prepare this teaching agree that he is indeed depicted in the Bible as a real and personal enemy, not as an abstract force of malevolence. And to my understanding, belief in Satan and his kingdom are absolutely essential in understanding the problem of evil and understanding temptation, sin, suffering, death. Without Satan, we're left to either look for a divine explanation to evil, something heinous happens and we say, oh, why did God make this happen? Or we fit that explanation squarely onto the shoulders of human beings with no supernatural influence whatsoever. And according to the story of the Bible, God hates evil. He does not ordain it. Instead, it comes by way of the Satan, and it comes by way of his influence over the natural order and the humanity that operates therein. 
One scholar puts it this way. The central message of the New Testament salvation, or the central message of the New Testament is salvation. Christ saves us. What he saves us from is the power of the devil. If the power of the devil is dismissed, then Christ's saving mission becomes meaningless. Or this again from Bruner. A real force is actively present in the cosmos, urging to evil. This evil force has a purposive center that actively hates good, the cosmos, other individuals, and ourselves. It has terrible and immense effects, but it is ultimately futile. Every individual can defeat it in himself or herself by drawing upon the loving power of God. For Christians, then, the person of the devil really brings horror to the world every day and threatens to lay the entire earth waste. And this is why this story remains every bit as pressing for its audience in 2017 as it was for the reader of the first century. The purpose of the devil is to fracture relationships. Relationships between God and his son, between God and mankind, and between mankind and the rest of mankind. And even between mankind and creation, between the environment and the animal kingdom and so on. And here, Satan focuses on splitting Jesus from his father-spoken identity. God says, you are my son. Satan says, are you really God's son? And by doing so, he's working to split Jesus from his mission and his purpose. And believe me when I say that he does the exact same thing for you and I. Is Jesus God's son? Is Jesus really God's unique son? Is he really pleasing to the Father? If he has questions at this point, then transformed rocks, Satan suggests, will answer these questions immediately. Just a little more affirmation. Angels that snatch him from a nasty fall would be tons of proof that he is who God says he is. Why not test the truth of that voice that you heard at the baptism? And I think most of us can relate to such a temptation all too well. When God's voice becomes questionable, we will seek out alternate methods of affirmation. We'll look for better baptisms or clearer experiences or a more quantifiable proof so that we can finally be sure that we are true sons and daughters, that we are worthwhile, that we do matter. So we're being raised on the internet to believe that one day we'll all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars and desirable influential personalities, but we won't, just so you know. And when we slowly learn that fact, the search just scrambles on with more desperation. A voice from heaven is one thing, for sure, that's amazing. But turning rocks into bread is, is pretty cool too. Jesus could pursue a new and perhaps better experience as an affirmation of the identity he's already received. Yeah, he could do that. But to do so presupposes a level of distrust in what God has already said. One scholar put it this way, we must recall that this was a real temptation, that Jesus was tempted to do this. He was hungry. <laughs> All Jesus had to show from his baptismal experience was his memory of and belief in baptism's gifts. But memory can play tricks and faith can ebb. How many of you know this all too well? You know, there's some moment, there's some incredible closeness to God, something spoken over you by God's Spirit or uh, maybe into your mind or through another person. Maybe it was even something miraculous and extraordinary. You were healed or there was this incredible insight into your person that no one could have known. But then the next morning comes along and the experience begins to fade and wane. Was that a coincidence? 
Was I really feel healed? You know, my leg feels funny again. Or that could have been anything. It could have been my wishful thinking. It could have been a coincidence. It could have been a lucky guess. It could have been an emotional high. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were in pre-gathering prayer. It's something we do every week at 4 o'clock upstairs where we just, a bunch of us get together and pray over the gathering and ask God if there's anything cool he wants to do um, so we can have insight into it. And a young man, friend of mine, he's over here watching the door right now so I can see him clearly. I wondered when I wrote this if I would be able to identify you. Thanks for being over there. Um, uh, his name's Levi. I'm sure a ton of you guys know him. He mentioned that he had what, um, what's called a, a word of knowledge from the Spirit. Or he mentioned that he may have what's called a word of knowledge from the Spirit. It's simply specific information given by God's Spirit about a person or a situation that the recipient would have no way of knowing otherwise, okay? And it was terribly specific. So in his uh, word, there was a young lady, um, there was a specific age, there was a specific hair color, and she was newly pregnant and worried, and God wanted to speak comfort over her. And, and Levi delivered this with the utmost humility. I have no idea if it's just me. This seems really weird because it's so specific. I don't know. And we said, let's just go for it, you know. So uh, we went for it. Uh, during the gathering, if you remember, someone came up here and said, uh, Levi's word on stage and sure enough a young lady came to the prayer team um, who was newly pregnant and was worried and uh, we asked ordinarily it's not okay to do this but uh, we asked her age uh, and she told us and it was the exact age from Levi's uh, word but her hair wasn't the same color so Katie the deacon over the prayer team just asks this is weird but hey what color is your hair really you know after we asked her age you know we didn't scare her off with that um, and to which the young lady replied, oh, no, it's actually this, the exact color from Levi's word. Uh, it was incredible, so specific, right down to the number and the shade and the situation, so specific. And it was amazing. And then the next week, we were at pre-gathering prayer once again, and there was Levi faithfully um, showed up to pray and to speak. And, and he confessed that when he'd gone home or the next morning, it crossed his mind. Was that really God's spirit? Was that just me? Was it a coincidence? And that happens to all of us. It happens to us uh, maybe every single time. I hope less and less as we grow in our apprenticeship to Jesus. And here's the bottom line. Either we believe the voice of the Father when he says, you are my child, or we believe the other voice. You're God's child when you can prove it, or when you have a better story, or when you get a better experience, or when you feel that way emotionally. And signs and wonders and emotional experiences, they can be beautiful. But beware the tendency to attach the validity of your God-given identity to amazing proofs and emotional experiences. It's not these amazing moments like Levi's word of knowledge that proves the truth of who Levi is as God's son. It's in the simple trust that Levi places in what God has spoken over him with or without an amazing word of knowledge. He could show up to pre-gathering prayer every single time and have nothing impressive to say, nothing that dazzles, nothing that makes story after story. Like, wow, we got to share that with everyone. It's so incredible. And the truth about who God, he says, would remain constant nonetheless. In tonight's story, Jesus does not call on bigger and better, miraculous, spirit-filled power to defeat the temptation of Satan, which is interesting to me. Um, he just reads Bible verses at him <laughs> uh, with great resolve. Jesus simply insists that what the Father has said about the Son is true. What Jesus knows from the Scriptures is true. And it seems so simple, but it's often easier said than done, right? 
Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my son Beck was having what parents like to describe as a hard day, which is like parents speak for he was being a butthead. He was awful. Um, and we'd gotten him to church, and he'd, he'd like missed a nap. I could puff up all these excuses around it. He was just awful. He's a nightmare, truly a nightmare. Um, and I was bummed, and I was frustrated by the time the gathering was about to begin. You know, I had to like hand him like this to the people down there. I was like, I'm sorry. Have fun. Call Abby. <laughs> um, and... So I was walking through the sanctuary, and there was all the hustle and bustle, and I was like, oh, dang, I hope they're okay, and I, you know, why was he like that? He's so disobedient today. And it occurred to me out of nowhere that I just could not help but love this kid anyway, and not in the sense that I like, I got to remember I love my son. Like, I was suddenly flooded with affection for this kid, and I knew that he had been disobedient, so it wasn't that, like, I was excusing that fact and saying it was misunderstood, you know. I knew that that was the case, and I just loved him anyway. In fact, I loved him a ton. I was filled with all this, like, affection for him and thinking about him. He brought uh, an actual smile to my face. And in that moment, I felt like the, the Spirit speak into my mind, you are not a better dad than the Father. Because I will absolutely allow the sort of relentless affection um, from myself to my son. Yeah, I believe that because I experienced it. But when I imagine the father doing similarly, or, or God forbid, even better for me, his often disobedient son, I banish that thought away as wishful thinking. It's not me. It's too good to be true. I do not believe it because I know me. And the Spirit really challenged me. He said, do, do you believe what I say is true? This isn't about some gesture of modesty or humility on your part. When you deny the Father's love, even when it's because you're disobedient and you know yourself and all that stuff, you make God out to be a liar because there's this other voice. Did God really say dot, dot, dot? And the question I think for us tonight is which voice will we believe? Because we will all have occasion after occasion to question that voice. And we all have the truth of the scriptures, this ancient library of writings that's locked in place that we can visit and revisit, whether or not it conjures up any emotional experience at all. And yeah, that's great. That's one thing. But what about what we feel and what we know about ourselves? Will we really believe what God says about us? So tonight, rather than just speak all this into the air and go about our business, I want to invite us each um, to sort of ask that question, which voice will we believe? And we're going to do that through just a brief time of listen listening uh, prayer and something called imaginative prayer. So if you guys don't mind, would you just go ahead and stand up with me?